0: Rockheads, stop searching for the Uncut Dutch Tavern episode at Archive.org and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maceolik here to announce show number 175 with guest Ted Neward, recorded live Thursday, May 4th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies, online at www.franklins.net, and by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.datadynamics.com Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now the man who raised the bar until they asked him to leave, Carl Franklin. Thank you Welcome to another
1: stellar episode of .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut. That's right, New London, that other place between New York and Boston that nobody ever visits, except to go to the casinos, which aren't even in New London. And Richard Campbell out there on the other coast, the alternate coast, the west coast, and north, British Columbia. Hi, Richard. I've been to New London. I even like it there. Let me just tell you something. We have the best restaurants in New England, maybe in America, right here in New London. We have awesome, <laughs> awesome food. Oh, it's a great place. An awesome place to raise children. No two ways about it. I Absolutely. thought it was fabulous. Absolutely. So you're, how's your cleanup going? You, you got pelted with water from your fish tank a couple weeks ago. How's it going? Well, I got good news, bad news, and crazy
2: news. You ready? All right. <laughs> okay. The bad news is it's still not finished. Uh, the good news is all the demolition is done. The carpets are out. The cabinets are out. The walls have been cut. The office is disassembled completely. So, I mean, that's actually good. It's not going to get any worse. They got to start putting things together from here.
1: And you're seriously going to put the, the, the tubing in the walls for water cooling? Why, that would be the crazy news. The plumbing <laughs> is in. Oh, man. Centralized water cooling coming to an office near you. And if you ever get thirsty, you can just go up to your wall and press a button and psh, out pops a cup of water, right? Yeah, with, that's one quarter
2: isopropanol. I wouldn't recommend that.
1: Oh, isopropanol. You're going to cool your machines with alcohol? Well, you've got to put some alcohol in the water, otherwise it turns green. Oh, okay. I thought you wanted green. So it looked like that case, you know, with the, the chrome green machine that we saw in episode 69. Way back when. No, yeah. no. I like my water to stay clean. So okay. there you go. Green with maybe food coloring, not with algae. Well, we got some uh, some email this week. Boy, we're getting a lot of great email. Keep them coming. This one is from Brig. Hats off to Carl and Richard for having great conversations with extraordinary people. In the episode with Kent Allstott on Atlas, a listener mentioned he listened to the show while running. I, too, listen to the show while running and agree that it's a great way to get your mind off the road. Thanks for the catalyst for my exercise. Brig Lemereau. <laughs> Brig, I wish you worked on me, man. Jeez. I need a little catalyst <laughs> for exercise. and It ain't .dotnet Rocks, let me tell you. <laughs> I, try, I found that flooding my basement, really good
2: way to need to go to the gym a lot. <laughs> it's worked great for me. Yeah. Hey, I've got an email as well. Hi, Carl and Richard. Thanks for your great .NET Rock show. Every week, I'm looking forward to listening to a new episode. I'm a listener for a few months now, and I'm really learning a lot for your new shows. Thanks for that. Because I'm spending about 10 to 15 hours per week in my car, I do have a plenty of time for listening. I've got a lot of catching up to do. I'm trying to listen to all the previous shows, too. The only problem with catching up is downloading your shows. When navigating through your site and selecting some old shows, the menu on the site always shows the latest shows, and that cost me a lot of time. I'm really lazy. <laughs> well, I can't argue with that. It is a challenge to get all the old shows because, hey, there's 175 of them. That's a lot of shows. Right. So maybe it's possible for you to let the earlier shows be available in RSS feeds to make it easier to download them.
1: You know, we did that. Yeah, we did that once, and we found that the aggregators people were using were re-downloading, and, and then... While it was great for our download numbers, there was a lot of downloads that weren't necessary that were going. The way we're going to solve this is by creating a zip file every week that has all of the individual uh, uh, torrent files in it. So we'll just add to the zip file. The reason that we can't do uh, one big torrent file with, uh, with all the downloads in it, you know, one, one big with all the files in it, is that the torrent file is going to change every week. Right. So right. it's not something that you would subscribe to because, you know, you would you don't want to download them all over again. Right. So we're just going to put them all in a zip file, let you download the ones you want. And it closes with, I'm also going to see you on at SDC
2: in two weeks in the Netherlands, and I'm looking forward to that. Maybe we can drink a beer at the bar. Yeah. Regards, Erwin Barron's The Netherlands. Awesome. And, hey, we are going to be in SDC soon. We are. We've and been I suddenly about realized, it. you know, there's lots of folks who in SDC. If you're not signed up for this conference, you should be. SDC.nl is the website. And I last week's guest, Kent Alstad, is going to be there. Yep. Uh Carl and I are both going to be there. Mark Miller is going to be this week's guest going to be there. So Michelle LaRubustamenti will be there next
1: from ne- for next week's guest. And this week's guest, which I believe is Ted Neward. Ted will be there too. He is going to be there. Let me tell you about Ted. Ted is an independent consultant specializing in high-scale enterprise systems working with clients ranging in size from Fortune 500 companies to small 10-person shops. He is an authority in Java and .NET technologies, particularly in the area of Java.NET integration, both in process and via integration tools like web services, back-end enterprise software systems, and virtual machine execution engine plumbing. Ted, welcome back to .NET Rocks. Hey, guys. How you doing? Yeah, we're doing great. Glad to have you back on.
3: Well, <laughs> after that bio, I almost didn't recognize me. That sounds so formal when it's read out over the air like that.
1: You are a formal guy. I yeah, noticed I'm that about so, you. totally
3: not a formal guy. What are you talking about? <laughs>
1: it, you know, it takes a lot to loosen you up. Let's just say that. I mean, I've seen you loose, I've seen... But, you know, you are a formal guy. <laughs> But your new website's uh, okay. beautiful. I'm blown away by it. It I'm, looks great. I mean, maybe maybe formal isn't the word, but serious. You're very serious about what
3: you I'm, do. I'm very serious. Yeah. Uh, sure. Sure, that works. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I'll slip you that check in the mail tonight.
1: <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying, Richard. Help me out of this. He's
2: a no, serious I think guy. No, you're just making it up. No, he's... You're crazy.
3: A... <laughs> great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Paul. That's my that friend Richard Campbell. That's my friend Richard Campbell. That's my Left friend.
2: all right now i'm going give you some I'll give you some love here. You're right, Ted Neward takes on some seriously scary problems right this whole living <laughs> one foot in the java space, one foot in the dot net space. nobody sane would do that
3: <laughs> i I cop to the accusation of being insane, but I will never cop to the accusation of being serious.
1: oh, you're all serious right. come on. <laughs> <laughs>
3: See, this is the part. I know what you're trying to do. This is the part where I'm supposed to say something really schlocky, like only what I'm consulting for my clients or something like yeah. that. I just, I can't do that. That just sounds all different. right. Well, let's
1: say if you, Richard, Mark Miller, and I all went out for drinks, you would be the last person to laugh at a joke.
3: That is not true. I totally <laughs> resent that I could say, That's it. I'm not doing this show anymore. I'm out of here. <laughs>
2: yeah because the real answer is mark miller he'd say hey ask me later i'll tell you how to make that
1: funny right (laughs) so what have you been doing lately ted
3: oh let's see um well since the last time we talked i moved to redmond um i'm now living about 10 minutes from the uh uh, the center of the black hole as one friend of mine who amazingly enough comes from the java universe described it (laughs) um And, um, you know, basically just continuing to do a lot of the same stuff that I did before, you know, teaching and going around and consulting. And um, as you guys mentioned, I'm I'm speaking at SDC in a couple Mm -hmm. of weeks. I'm actually doing a session with uh, Kathy Jureau. We're talking about uh, pragmatic architecture. Wow, cool. And we're going to repeat that session actually at TechEd in June. So if you don't want to fly out to the Netherlands to catch our talk, which... I mean, to me, that seems worth it. But um, you know, then you can catch us in Boston in the middle of June, um, and if you can't get out to Boston in June, and there's plenty of reasons why you wouldn't want to go to Boston in June, um, you can <laughs> catch us.
1: Let me think about that. Hang on a 2nd I'm yeah, getting a visual. you do that.
3: You do that, East Coast boy. Yeah. Um, then you can catch us. Actually, uh, that, uh, Microsoft has decided they're going to simulcast this particular presentation, and put it up over the web. Wow, great. Yeah. And when Kathy found out, she just about killed me. But, you know, that, that's largely because she was expecting to speak to people in the audience, not to people, you know, all over the world at the same time. Yeah. Kind of surprised me, too. But apparently this is uh, something that people are really interested in. So
1: it's a good and idea. Then,
3: well, you know, there's, there's lots of high-level foofiness that you talk about when you get into architecture and we're trying to distill past all that and try to, you know, dispel the myth that architect is Latin for cannot code anymore. <laughs> 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 Meanwhile, on the writing front, um... All right, I'm I take back what working. I said
1: about you not having a sense of humor. That was pretty good.
3: <laughs> 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 I
1: stand humbled. <laughs>
3: uh Well, at least you can admit it. I mean, that, that's, that's a point in your favor there, Carl. You know, great. um... No, on the writing front, actually, um, I've got a couple of different book projects going on. One of the ones that I'm really kind of excited about is actually a, it's a port, if you will, of a book that really made a lot of waves in the Java space called Pragmatic Project Automation, mm. um, basically talking about, you know, developers are continuously talking about how they don't have time. And so this book by Mike Clark, um, essentially talked about how to create a whole bunch of elements, a whole bunch of tools and so forth within your development process to save yourself time, you know, to automate things and why we want to automate and the benefits of automation. And then, you know, once we get past those five pages of introduction, get into all the nitty-gritty details of how to automate. And a lot of those techniques turn out to be really portable to the .NET space So I talked to Mike. Mike said it was a good idea. They'd be getting calls for a .NET version of this book for a couple of years. So I'm working on turning that guy out. And um, hopefully it'll be, you know, done, written, done by the middle of this year, a couple of months from now. And, um, you know, available in people's hands in either soft or hard copy probably by third or fourth quarter.
1: Sounds good. So project automation, is there any relationship to continuous integration here? Is this part of continuous integration, or is this seen as something different?
3: CI is basically part of project automation, right? I mean, a continuous integration is sort of the last step in establishing a CRISP build process. Mm -hmm. CRISP is is an acronym that Mike cooked up not too long ago uh, where he talks about you want to create uh, CRISP Builds, uh, complete, repeatable, informative, schedulable, and what was the last one? Oh, portable, portable builds. Okay. Portability being an important thing in the Java space, not as critical in the .NET space when you mm-hmm. think about doing it across platforms, mm-hmm. but important when you talk about doing it across developer machines. Okay. Right? Have you ever been a part of one of those teams where there's only one guy who can actually build the whole thing? Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. we
2: call him the build master. build guy.
3: Yeah. Well, the problem is, what happens is the build master goes on vacation, or the right. build master gets hit by a bus, you know, or some, you know, one of the developers turns around and says, "Hey, there's a bug in the code base, and I know I fixed it. Why didn't it get into the released product, et cetera, et cetera?" The idea of a portable build in this case basically suggests that we want to have builds that anybody can kick off. So if the build master wants to go on vacation or if he wants to get married or if he wants to quit or whatever, then we can go ahead and run a build off of anybody's machine.
1: So I know what continuous integration is. What uh, What's, and you say that it's a subset of uh, project automation. What, what do you define then as the broader definition of project automation?
3: Project automation is just anything, um, any sort of task that we can slave a machine to, right? I see. So in the sense of continuous integration meaning what we want to do is we want to run builds continuously.
1: Fantastic. Right? So whether you do
3: a continuous integration or a nightly build, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference from the automation perspective because in order to get there, you have to have these consistent, repeatable, et cetera, builds.
4: Right? Yeah. You have
3: to be able to do a one button, you know, a one step build is how we refer to it. I want to be able to say in the Java space, I want to be able to say ant Build or I want to be able to say Nant build or MS build, you know, project name or whatever. Yeah. And everything involved in constructing this thing from soup to nuts runs, right? So it's not just a question of just building the software, but in some cases it's a question of, for example, if you do some kind of object relational mapping where you're trying to Snarf out metadata from the database and construct objects that correspond to the the the, the, the table structure inside your relational database. You don't yeah. have a simple you know di- table data gateway mapping. We should rerun all that code generation as part of the build because you don't know the database schema may have changed subtly between the last time you did the build and this time okay. right? anything that's not considered source. Needs to go through some kind of process in order to be used. So even to the point of, if you make database changes, you should have schemas, scripts that will get kicked off and run by this build process against, you know, against some target database to ensure that everything will work. This also includes your unit tests. You know, right. that's where the integration part, continuous integration, comes in. Right. Okay, I want to make a change. Right, but just the whole nine yards. Right, right. code automation. Um, which Studio, Visual Studio does for us a little bit with respect to those snippets and stuff, right? Mm, right. You know, that's basically a form of code automation. Just, you know, stretching out and looking at all of those things, even those things that, you know, don't necessarily plug into an MS build script or an ANT build script, mm. but things you need to do from the command line.
1: Now, obviously, uh, this is very tool dependent. And the in this book that you're talking about, he, you say he tells you how to build the tools Um is it, is it, are you definitely a build-it-yourself kind of guy, or are there tools out there that you like and that you use already?
3: Well, no, there's a bunch of tools that we don't. I mean, you don't build something if, if something else out there will serve your purposes. Yeah. Right? So, for example, one of the things that um, uh, Mike was talking about from the Java space is this language called Groovy, which is sort of a relaxed, sort of dynamically typed Java variant. Yeah. And one of the things that the Java community has not embraced as as fondly as the .NET community is this notion of multiple languages on the JVM. So Groovy was sort of this, you know, hey, let's let's get away from the statically typed model, you know, heavily influenced by Ruby and Smalltalk and so forth. Yeah. And let's use it as a scripting language, almost like a shell scripting language like from the Unix world of, of bash and and csh scripts and so forth. In the .NET space, one of the things I'm looking at as uh, this is what we should be doing going forward is monad i'm sorry strike that windows power, power shell. shell right yeah ugh yeah what is it you know. with them
2: taking really good code names <laughs> and coming up with really bad names after that well now
1: i understand as i understood it the reason that they don't use those names was because of legal implications but monad who's going to have a problem with that
3: well, there's actually a, a linguistic concept if you go and, and do like you know, if you Google for monad, you'll find that there's a language concept coming from the world of languages like Haskell and so forth, where monad is an actual linguistic idea. I see. So they may have may have concerns about, you know, well you're you know, you're you're implying that your shell is somehow monadic, which it's really, really not. I, you know, I don't, I don't know, know why they didn't okay. just well, I mean, just call uh, it yeah. you know mopad or something I mean,
1: yeah,
3: anyway, but yeah you know, monad um is is really interesting and exciting from the perspective of developers and perspective of creating build scripts because it has full access to the dotnet framework I mean you can just fire up a monad environment monad command prompt mm-hmm. and new up a .NET object anytime you'd like. Mm-hmm. And so here is an opportunity to create scripts, you know, to do things with the environment. You need to create a virtual directory. You can new up the necessary code to interact with the IIS catalog to create said beast. You need to install right. complex components. You need to blah, blah, blah. Monad has the ability to do that. Yeah. You know, and it is a very dynamically slash weakly typed environment to let you do all
1: that. Yeah, I, I first learned... I mean, I knew about Monad for a long time, but I really got into it when I talked to Scott Hanselman about it on Hanselman minutes, And he's crazy about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really opened my eyes as to what you can do. Instead of passing strings as the default parameter types, you pass objects. Right. And you can essentially write code that interacts with just about everything on the on the system.
3: Right. And since Monad recognizes WMI, for example... Right, WMI, Windows Management Instrumentation. Yeah, WMI, you know, talks to literally every other part of the Windows operating system. So you can, you know, take a look at the existing drives and the existing space on those drives, and you can look at pre-installed, you know, elements. I mean, there's literally nothing. You know, this stuff. This is what really sort of, you know, allows developers to sort of see down there in the bowels of the operating system without having to write a whole bunch of complicated C++ code. Yeah. So it, I mean, Monad itself is is an interesting and exciting subject and is, you know, definitely worth several books on its own.
1: But it's one of those tools that integrates nicely into continuous integration and, and project automation cause, just yeah. because of its extensibility. Right. What, um, yeah. do you have any, and I'm looking at your site, tedneward.com, which looks beautiful, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, do you have any sort of, uh, diagrams or Rube Goldberg machine descriptions of of how uh, some of these tools all work together and some of your some of your ideal architectures for you know development and build and automation environments
3: well not not in the sense of diagrams and architectures and so forth, simply because in many cases I found that they have to be tuned to the team and the company around them right you know the way the way that I would suggest setting up a build environment for, you know, for example, Carl, for for maintaining the DotNet Rocks website and doing various things there, will be very different from what I would do when I'm working with a particular client out in Michigan who's who's building software, you know, that's intended for internal use, which sure. is different from a company who's building software that's intended for the website.
1: Right. So, it's, but there there must so, be there must be certain things that apply across the board.
3: Well, I mean, again, you know, the notion of a crisp build process, right. a one-step build, the notion of scheduling those builds, right? There's these atoms right. that we can we can talk about. The notion of being able to, you know, reproduce the installation environment with a one-step, you know, a one-step deployment, right. right? Which is kind of like a one-step build, but you know, a little bit different, so that when the IT guy gets a hold of your software right he basically only has to do one thing to kick this thing off right. so for example one of the things i will suggest to just about everybody um is that the end result of your build process should be an msi right or some re- you know some form of installer so that when you get ready to, you know even for enterprise projects that are never going to leave the building right just bringing it over to the you know the data center and installing it there you want this to be as simple and as seamless as possible because every dialogue that the guy has to go through, every decision that he has to make is another opportunity for him to screw it up. Correct. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, and, and you especially of- don't want to have documents that say, okay, pull this file from here and that file from there. Absolutely. You know, tie them together with string, put them in a bundle and light them on fire and blah, blah, right. blah. right,
3: right. You know, deployments that are strung together with duct tape and bailing wire are the very first ones to break, and the time when they break is when there's any pressure on them whatsoever, like trying to do a deployment at the 11th hour as you're, you know, you're rolling out release candidates, and, oh, there's a bug, we need to fix it, and you roll out another release candidate, and, oh, there's another bug, you know, You keep doing this, and sooner or later, somebody's going to screw it up, and you're going to start fixing bugs that have already been fixed, but you didn't think they were fixed, so then you start changing the code, which introduces new bugs, and all of a sudden, you're caught on this loop of, wait a minute, what the hell is actually running in production? We don't know anymore, right? That's what a one-step deployment is intended to try to circumvent. And we're fortunate in the .NET space that we have the MSI concept, Mm -hmm. because in the Java space, they really don't. I mean it's really not nearly as pervasive, mm. largely because Java is, you know, cross platform. So mm-hmm. we can't rely on the idea of an NSI or whatnot. You know. Some people have gone to and some of the installer programs have gone to the idea of producing jar files, basically standalone executables to yeah. do the installation process. But you know, let's call this state of space. Self extracting zip
1: files. Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. That's just painful.
1: Yep. Um, Ted, what kinds of um techniques you use to uh, provide feedback to the developers and the managers during these automated processes?
3: There's a variety of different things you can use. I mean, one of which is, you know, you mentioned it earlier today RSS. Right? Sure. There is no reason that says that blogging has to be done by carbon based life forms.
1: RSS is a wonderful thing.
3: RSS is beautiful. And the beautiful thing about RSS is really not even in the format. Right? And to be honest, this format is ridiculously simple. Yep. Um, the beauty of it is the fact that everybody kind of agrees on it, yeah. and we all have these tools to be able to consume it, including, by the way, Visual Studio itself. Right. So this: right. right. You walk into your cube you or your office or whatever, you file up Visual Studio, and it immediately tells you what the results of the build last night were. Very cool. Results of the build, results of the test. Results of the deployment, you know, the refactoring scripts that go against the database, boom, right there. First thing you see when you fire up visual You're student. talking so about
1: the start page, right, with the news right. items that's that come all, in?
3: That's all keyed off of an RSS. Um, and you can change wait. that? Yeah. it's it's. I don't remember offhand. I can find it for you. I'm point. sure. That's all right. But it's buried deeply away down there and you know, options, general, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. But, yeah, that start page is just consuming RSS, so you can just post that and everybody's... Developer studio installation point to that, and voila, they get that information every time they fire up studio and see that start page.
1: one of the more interesting
3: that well go ahead. the other thing you know, not, not to shut you down Carl, but no, like go ahead. To shut you down um, the other one that's very commonly used is email right mm-hmm. you do you run the build if the build fails, it sends an email to an email alias that tells all the developers what happened right and you know the beautiful thing about this is that at any point. If your development manager, if the VP, the president, your partner, your client, whomever comes up to you and says, hey, how's it going? Because you've got a daily build or a continuous build, you just walk them over to where that stuff was built recently. You know, and if it's a WinForms app, you just double click the icon. If it's a ASP.NET app, then hopefully you've got it deployed on a server already. If not, you can do that for them and show them. Right. And that, more than anything else, makes them feel like you're making progress.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's... There's something very powerful about being able to show them the app, even if it's not all wired up. But something runs,
1: something pops up a startup screen, some kind of dialogue comes along. There's activity, mm-hmm. and conversely, it's to your detriment if you don't have any kind of feedback on a regular basis to the higher ups.
3: Well, I mean, the problem the problem is that you know software is so ephemeral, it's so abstract that yeah. you know they say, "How's it going?" and we say, "Fine." You know, for 40 years, they've heard that answer, yeah. and yet 75% of all projects fail, cost overruns, budget overruns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, the thing is, we, we need to be better about proving it. to yeah. them. You think about this, if you're building a house and you go to the site and you don't see anything, and you say, how's it going, and the construction foreman keeps telling you, oh, it's going great, it's going fine, it's going wonderful. Right. You're thinking to yourself, okay, I see no framework. I see no plumbing, I see no wallpaper, I see nothing. How can you tell me that this is going great? And they're
1: constructing it a mile away in a field, and they're going to move it on the last day, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know... How's you, it going? You don't know. They could very well be doing that, but without that sort of tangible feedback, right. you can't tell. And more importantly, if they get something wrong, like, say, they forgot a room, God forbid... Um, if, you're, if they're building it right there on site where you can see it, you can walk over and say, hey, there's supposed to be some concrete right here where my den is supposed to be. Yeah. I don't see anything. What's going on? You go back, you look at the plans, you yell, you scream, you figure it out, but you can fix it yep. long before the project is, is finished.
2: At least you catch it. Even if you can't fix it, at least you knew that it was wrong before you were supposedly done.
3: Right, right. And this is, I mean... You know, this is why frequently when you talk about this stuff, you start edging your way into the whole agile software development practices. You know, you're not too far away from this because now if you can see the stuff, you start saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, I know I know what I find in that requirements, Doc, but, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, that's not going to work. And we know about this long before it shifts. So now we can go to a change board or we can negotiate a change or whatever. You know, because at the end of the day, You know, we're here to provide a service, which is to make our customers and our clients lives easier, and if we can't accommodate their changes, either because they didn't know what to say or because their needs have changed or whatever, who cares, we need to be able to adjust for that. And so having stuff that we can show them on a regular basis is just crucial to that.
1: Um, You know, one of the things that I learned from talking to Scott Hanselman again uh, about continuous integration is some... Some great tools that they've used, including strobe lights and red lights that flash to indicate to the entire team that, that uh, you know, there's a problem with the build or something like that. Mm-hmm. They get pretty mm-hmm. inventive about, um, about giving feedback to the developers and, and the managers. It's kind of neat. Well, this
3: is where Mike's book was, Mike's book was actually the, the, the market leader in this, because Mike is the one who described how to use lava lamps. To, to monitor your builds. Wow.
1: Right?
3: <laughs> um, yeah, so what would happen is it would run, and if the build was successful, the green lava lamp would turn on. If the build, <laughs> for whatever reason, failed, the red lava lamp would turn on. And because they were doing a continuous build, the developer who was sitting next to the lamps, right, they were kind of mounted up high so everybody could see them, but the developer who sat closest to them could all of a sudden hear the switch, as the green lava lamp turned off and the red lava lamp turned off,
4: hmm.
3: well, of course, the lava lamp takes a while to warm up. So all of a sudden it became a race to fix the build before the red lava lamp could warm up <laughs> so it could switch back to the green lava lamp in time so it never really seemed to change. Wow. It became a race, right? <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's the kind of immediate feedback, right, at um, flu camp, the Friends of O'Reilly camp, um, a couple of years ago. I had the distinct privilege of introducing Mike Clark to Peter Drayton, who was a program manager on the CLR for Microsoft for a couple of years. And before yeah. that, he was a fellow developer instructor. Peter brought an ambient orb, one of those, you know, they look like a disco ball with a bunch of different colored lights on it. <laughs> and I actually introduced the two of them to one another because Peter wanted to know, after he read about the lava lance, he could you know if he could use the ambient orb to, to program against <laughs> and Mike was there, and Peter was there, and I'm like, oh, i got to introduce the two of you. Right. And so sure enough, by the end of it, they had sort of worked out the API and how it would work, and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not that hard, actually, to wire up the immune system. I believe it uh, uses the web services interface now. That is so to talk cool. To the microcontroller.
4: Oh, so, the yeah, life of a geek. Just,
3: oh, man. Yeah. You know, there's so many different ways. There's another story... Um, Another buddy of mine from the Java space, Glenn Vanderberg, was getting ready to do a presentation on just sort of these uh, real-world feedback mechanisms that mm-hmm. we as geeks, you know, look to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and he told a story about how, I guess it was 10, 15 years ago, something like that, um, one of the one of the guys uh, who was involved in some of the initial standards and so forth surrounding QCPIP he wired a single-step a single step motor up to a small hardware device that was in turn plugged into a TCP IP network. And every time a packet came through, this device would sense the packet and send an eight-turn command to the motor. And then he tied a string to the end of the motor. So that literally, if somebody was, you know, if as packets came across this wire the engine would turn in correspondence to how many packets were flowing through the wire. So all of a sudden, if this thing started spinning and whipping this this rope around, he would literally look to whomever was in his office and say, the Internet sounds busy today. (laughs) (laughs) And the funny thing is, you know, and this was Glenn's point in his paper, that, you know, machines keep getting quieter and hard drives keep getting quieter and we have less and less and less sort of sensory feedback as to what's going on in the system, that, that we're looking for ways. It used to be you knew when to turn off your machine by waiting for the hard drive to stop clunking and the green light to stop flashing.
1: Yeah, yeah and the, the smelling the smoke, you know.
3: Right. And <laughs> now we have to trust that when the operating system says it's safe to turn off your computer, we just have to believe it.
4: Because
1: right.
3: we have no way of ascertaining when everything is done.
1: Ted, this is a good place to uh, stop for just a second, and I'll tell the users about our sponsor, without which this show would not be possible. Data Dynamics is our sponsor, and they're the proud makers of ActiveReports.net. And you can check them out online at www.datadynamics.com.
2: So, Ted, it's time to go dive into some pain. Uh And the pain when it comes to continuous integration and project automation, I think, lies in the data. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a big difference between code where we can build a new version, replace the old version. Databases, you just can't do that. We build up this data, and you cannot replace it. You have to make deltas. You've got to give us the changes to the data structures, and they can only be applied once. They're very hard to roll back. They can't be applied again. You have to make a new delta each time you do that application. How do you get that into continuous integration, into those builds so that they're automatic?
3: Well, it's funny you bring that up, Richard, because... um, And and to the listeners, no, we did not plan this. Um, It's funny you bring that up because... (laughs) Uh, a book oh I yeah. know
2: I planned it I knew I was going to go here <laughs> I'm the data guy this is my pain you're speaking to me
3: <laughs> have you seen the book uh, Refactoring Databases I have by not by Ambler and Sandalage uh, um, it's a you've, have you seen the um, the black covered hardbound books the, the um, what do they call them the, the Fowler Enterprise Series the Addison Wesley Signature Series Have you seen these? um, Martin Fowler's got a book of patterns in this same series. Anyway, it's by Addison Wesley. The title is uh, Refactoring Databases. And, you know, for those who aren't yet familiar with the term refactoring, that's the idea that we can take an existing code base and make some changes to it and have confidence that those changes will not break anything, typically because we have a whole bunch of unit tests behind us to make sure that stuff still works. Well, Scott Ambler, um, who's probably more well-known in the Java space than he is in the .NET space, has spent the last, I don't know, five, ten years, something like, dealing specifically with databases and, in this particular case, dealing with how do we do agile database techniques. And, you know, for years, basically, I've been in the same camp that you have been, Richard, which says, okay, yeah, all this agile stuff works except when you get to relational databases. Gambler has been working with ThoughtWorks, which is a large consultancy that has focused Java, .NET, and now is getting some into Ruby, and this is where Martin Fowler calls home. And they've been doing a lot of projects trying to create agile databases, databases that can be refactored and so forth. And they have discovered, um, as I look at the book, they've discovered, oh, geez, must be easily 50-some-odd different tips, steps, patterns, whatever you want to call it, they call them refactorings and transformations, that can be applied to a database to enable this stuff to take place. It's not, it's not as easy as, you know, the refactoring that we're used to that Visual Studio turns on for us. Because right. you're right, Richard, we can't just go off and replace the data, right? Particularly not in a production system, like we can replace the code in a production system. But there are a number of things that we can do, you know, introducing views, we can introduce triggers and so forth that will slowly migrate existing data over to a new schema as well as incoming data that gives us time to migrate other tools that are dependent upon that schema over to the new format. It's not as transparent. It's not as automated. But, you know, half of the opening chapter of the book is simply to say the idea that you cannot refactor a database is a myth. You can. It's not as easy as refactoring code, but you can refactor the database. And I have a feeling, you know, knowing what I know of you, Richard, you probably already know a good number of these tricks already, but it's the idea of applying them sort of collectively to a database schema. Because remember, when we're talking about continuous integration, a lot of times, what we're doing is we're trying to build. We don't necessarily have to build against the immediate previous build of the database. We have to build against what's currently in production in the database. right? And so a lot of times those delta scripts change only when the database schema itself changes.
2: It gets even more frightening when you start dealing with uh, commercial products where I could have four or five different versions of the database out in the wild, and I've got to mm-hmm. build a new version that will deal with all of them.
3: Yeah, and my, my suggestion to people who are in that situation is to get a new job. <laughs> No, I mean surrender now. Yeah, just give up. Just Mm -hmm. give up, you know, sharpen up your resume and start interviewing. No, I mean, you know, it's it's I mean obviously when you get to that situation where you have four or five different versions of the same thing floating around and your code has to deal with all of them, you have a problem. Obviously, you know, if you're in a situation where the database is not yours to refactor as you desire you have a situation, there are always constraints that surround, you know, a particular particular instance of a problem, which is why, you know, when Carl asked a little while ago, you know, is there any sort of Lube Goldberg diagram for how to do this? My answer is no, because you really have to tune it individually, right? Part of the thing, too, that we're running into is a lot of the agile guys, they work on small, you know, sort of VB-style projects. And I say that not to denigrate the VD programmer, but simply to say a lot of the the traditional VD projects are like one or two guys that are talking to their own database which they can tear apart and refactor as they see fit. You get into the more you know enterprise space where, you know, okay, I'm trying to integrate the marketing database and the HR database and the, you know, product database. You don't have the ability to go off and refactor those databases. You have to get buy-off from DBAs and, you know... That definitely introduces another, you know, hurdle. But again, in many cases, what we're looking for are ways to simply automate that process so that when it comes time to actually make those refactorings, we can simply point the DBAs at a particular set of scripts and say, run this and everything will be up to what we need it to be. As a matter of fact, we could do that as part of the MSI install process if you'd like, assuming they're on the same release schedule that we are.
1: Ted, it sounds I mean, like you've had some success doing this with data. Have you?
3: Yeah, um, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to claim that you know this is what I spend all of my life doing, um, but you know, I have been on projects where we have successfully refactored database schemas. You know, and it I mean, it can be done. Right. There are tools or techniques in some cases it's more painful than others, but it can be done right um, You know I'm certain there are people out there who know more about this than I do. Uh, one such name would be Scott Ambler. Um, but you know in general it's more, it's more an attitude than anything else that says, you know for years we've all sort of sat back and said, oh, we can't refactor the database." And now somebody has come along and said, yes, we can, and here are some t- you know, tips and tricks and techniques. And so now all of a sudden we're going, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, you should take that and run with it this way and run with it that way. And, oh, wow, yeah, this, this, this stuff really works. That's the more i got to think that the key
2: to facilitating refactoring, whether database or otherwise, are abstractions, is these interfaces that can be left in place, the boundaries between different pieces of code, and under the hood we're doing the refactoring. It certainly... That's one of the reasons that I count on stored procedures so heavily is that I can change stuff without changing that interface and, uh, and breaking the code that's calling it from elsewhere.
3: Right? Well, and views are another way to do that, too, um, although certainly views are a little bit less flexible than certainly stored procedures. But part of the thing, too, Richard, I mean, one of the, one of the real key things to refactoring is knowing that you're not breaking anything. And exactly. the only way you really know that you're not breaking anything is to have unit tests not just on your code, but also over your data.
2: And there's an interesting thought. Unit
1: testing against data. Yeah, I was just thinking I, that's a mm-hmm. new one for me.
3: Well, I mean, just from the standpoint that um, when you when you look at a particular you know imagine that you've you've got some sort of code that's going to act across a database. Right? You've got an ASP app, a Winforms app, you've got some legacy, C code, whatever what stops you from going in and arbitrarily changing the table definition? Right. The fact hopefully that all of your applications will break.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
3: hopefully secure it. Yeah. You know? but, but assuming you have the appropriate right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, assuming this is a good refactoring, not yeah. a, you know, insert, I own you underscore TBO. Um, <laughs> you know, assume, you know, what, what stops us, is the fact that, oh, I'm going to go off and I'm going to break the world if I make this change. so Oh, I can't make this change. Unit testing, you know, and I'm not just talking about unit testing, you know, the, the C-sharp code, but in some cases you have a unit test suite that's sort of independent of any other project that says, hey, everybody sort of assumes that the database schema is going to look like this, right? So in the case of Richard, where he uses stored procedures heavily, we want to make sure that those stored procedures continue to return the things that they're supposed to return. Yeah. Right. We can unit test that with any unit or, or team foundation or whatever. Mm. Um, in the case of views, we have to make sure that the view continues to return data in all the columns that we expect it to. Right. No mm-hmm.
1: The right schema. Right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So again, unit testing is there to, you know, to basically provide us a safety net so that the next time we do this build and the next time we run this, this one step build and we, test it all and we go, hey, wait a minute, we got nulls where we didn't expect any. Something went wrong. Why did that work? Oh, look at that. I accidentally pulled the wrong column when I did this view definition or I forgot to do this link when I did this store talk or dot, dot, dot. You know, I I think we have a long ways to go before we can close the book on all the different things that we can unit test and how we unit test. And I think People are just now coming around to the idea of, hey, I want to unit test my data, too. Um, you know, because, again, the refactoring only really works if you know that you're not breaking something. And the only way you know you're not breaking something is when you have unit tests to tell you when you broke something.
1: Okay, Ted, I'm going to uh, ask you a question that I uh, think I know your answer, but uh, let's just get it out anyway. We've had some disagreements between our guests on the value of test-driven development and the level of extreme to which a developing development shop should go uh, for test-driven development. So, in in the broad spectrum of, on one side, you know, write your test harnesses first before you write one line of code, and on the other side, uh, you know, no testing or maybe maybe if we have time, where where do you fall in terms of recommendations to uh, shops?
3: Well. Um... This is one of those areas where I'm going to answer by not answering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to That's because you're them. a
1: smart man. No, um, you'll notice you that know, I'm, I'm all, the one ans- asking the question, not answering it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know, in all honesty, you know, there, it, 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 the answer is it depends. Um, if you ask me, in terms of for myself, the answer is I prefer. I prefer some measure of unit testing. I don't know. I, don't, I will be the first to admit that I don't follow the test-driven idea where okay. I write my tests first. Okay. There are some advantages to doing that, largely in that you have to sort of think about what the API will look like from a client perspective before you actually write it. A lot
1: of people say it's, that. It's, the, it's what it leads you to think and how to right. think that that is the real value. And I you really separate a, the interface from the code. You have to
2: right. think about the interface first to build the test. Code comes later.
3: Right. And I will be the first to admit that I had a tendency to do that long before tests and test driven development came along. I had, you know, I would sit down and sort of write out longhand or just sort of sketch out, you know, throw a buffer. What do I want this API to look like? Because yeah. I want to practice proper encapsulation. Me right? too. Yeah. But the other thing is, very honestly. Um, in some cases, you know, that, that feels that feels like an impediment. That feels like overhead. That feels like, yeah, I know what it is I want to do. This all just feels right. I just want to go off and write some code. And I'll write the test to exercise the code later. Because in some cases, I'm thinking as I'm authoring the code.
4: Yeah. Right?
3: And in some cases, you know, the thing that I'm building is very much driven by its implementation to begin with. So to try to do something the other way would just lead me to a position where I have to go, okay, so I've written the API, I've written the test. Now, let me go and try to do the implementation. Oh, crap, the implementation won't work. I've got to go back and rethink the API and rewrite the test. I lost time there. Right. Right? So there are certain times when you start from an implementation and work your way out.
2: One of the arguments that is pro-TDD is that if you write the code first, you tend to write the test to match the code but I think the argument you just made there is the opposite. If you write the test first, you'll tend to write the code to match the test, and neither one of them is necessarily right.
3: That's exactly right. That's exactly mm. right. The, the other thing you really have to think about, too, is, and this is something that I stress very, very highly when I when I talk to clients and so forth, the culture of the client plays a huge, huge role in all of this. Yeah. If you've got a bunch of developers who don't buy into TDD. Trying to force them into this methodology is not going to work. Mm-hmm. You can show it to them, and if they buy it on their own, great, you've changed the culture. But if they don't buy into it, if they feel like it's a waste, if they don't understand why you have to do it this way, you're not going to change anything.
4: Yeah. And
3: all they're going to do is they're going to basically do the absolute minimum necessary to say, yes, checklist, fees, we are now a TDD shop. Right. You know, a lot of these Agile practices are grassroots kinds of things. They start from the bottom and work their way up. If the right. people at the grassroots don't buy into it, it's not going to happen. And no amount of yelling and screaming and pouting and whining and screaming and and, and threatening and calling and um, promising bonuses. I mean, I've seen all measure of inducements used to try to convert people from one culture to another, yeah. and it doesn't work. Mm. You know, you really when want to, to look
2: at how people address a culture or what culture is forming, I look at how the company, the organization as a whole, reacts to failures. How do we react to a bug? How do we react to production being down? Mm. That, I think, is the bigger measure of how the programmers are going to act. One of the things I find interesting about the TDD approach is it's a great cover your ass technique it's a lot of advanced checking so that by the time you check in a piece of code you're really sure it works right so in an mm-hmm. environment where they have a severe reaction to bugs where there's a punishment mentality to any failed code tdd is a good approach because it, while it takes longer to deliver it's a higher certainty of working the first time When I get into an environment that's more relaxed about failure, where we're willing to test and try and try again and go back around and catch these things, where we've got a good environment for finding failures in a more realistic place rather than on production then it's not so necessary. You're better off writing code and getting it out there, knowing if there's a problem, you'll get it back and be able to work on it again.
1: You know, I, I, I want to tell you that I talked to Jabal Lowy about this, and the only reason I'm going to tell you what he told me now is that it's going to be a while before we have a slot to have him on again. Otherwise, I'd let, <laughs> Otherwise, I'd let him say it himself. But he said something that was very interesting, which is, if you have a shop and this is typical Juval, but if you have a shop where there's a lot of inexperienced programmers it's a good idea is what he said if you have programmers you know where where they're inexperienced you know they're out of college or whatever and uh you know they need a, need a little bit more structure in order to come up with something good they'll thrive in that environment but if you have a lot of if you have a lot of uh programmers, and I think this is what Ted was saying, who are already set in their ways culturally, it's going to be a lot more difficult to uh, to implement. They'll get less out of it. There'll well, be less but those made. two
3: are, are orthogonal concerns, right? You can have inexperienced programmers who are set in their ways. It's just easier to change their ways, to change the culture. But I'm going to disagree pretty much 100% with you all in the sense that this is, you know, this is a good thing. And whether he intended it that way or it's just you paraphrasing, it, it sounds like he's saying, you know, as long as you're an experienced developer, you know, this isn't really going to have benefit for you. And, and I'm going to disagree thoroughly with that because I know that Peter Provost and Brad Wilson and other guys on the Patterns and Practices team, you know, are turning things out like EntLib and so forth, they've had tremendous success with a lot of this test-driven development and, and you know, unit tests as a whole and so forth. Yeah. And I know that code that I've written that has followed a more um, test-centric ideal is much, much more reliable and robust than code that I have written do not.
1: I don't think he was arguing about um, test-centric, but test-driven, meaning test-first, that, that's what I was addressing, or he was addressing. But I, think,
3: I think even there, um, in some cases, the, the junior programmer is the very one who's not going to know necessarily what to do When he sits down and writes tests, the junior programmer isn't necessarily going to know. He's going to do one of two things, in my experience. He's either going to write way too many tests, right? If we're creating a class to represent, you know, to normalize distance, and it's going to be measured in feet and instances, he's going to write a method to test the fact that 13 inches normalizes to one foot, and then he's going to turn around and write a test that that normalizes 14 inches, and 15 inches, and 16 inches, and 17 inches,
1: Mm.
3: you know, and he's going to normalize. You know what happens when I pass in zero and negative one and min int and max. He's going to
1: he's going to be overthinking it. In other words,
3: exactly. He's he's he doesn't have the experience to know when to say when, so to speak. Um, yeah. The experienced programmer will say, you know what? I can think of four conditions I need to think about. You know, any number less than twelve. I can think of any number greater than twelve, and any negative number. Yeah. And as long as it fits one of those three criteria, those are those are the three tests I have to write. We're done. Yeah. And so in some respects, you know, the junior programmers will benefit from some of the structure around having unit tests to catch their mistakes, but they really need to be led by a senior guy, someone who's done this before, who's got that experience, you know, and can just basically look at the code and say, okay, stop, you've written enough tests, let's move on. Yeah. Okay. You know? So like I said, the guys who I see really seem to derive the most amount of benefit out of TDD and test-centric are not junior developers but senior developers huh. who suddenly for the first time feel this incredible freedom. You know, I can go back, change all my code if I want, and I will know if I break something. I mean, that's like, the you know, that's like the first time you get drunk. You yeah. feel immortal. You feel, you know, you feel like you can do anything, <laughs> you know. I mean, Let's you just, just change you stuff to, for
2: fun. Yeah,
3: <laughs> Yeah, exactly, you know. Let's switch from .NET to Java because our unit tests will catch it. Well, <laughs> no, not really. But, right. you know, you're drunk. It, made sense <laughs> it
1: just made sense, yeah. Now that I'm producing all these shows every week, I don't have time to teach my classes anymore. I knew I had to find good trainers to teach, but I didn't take that decision lightly. So I turned to my friend, Mark Dunn, and the regional directors and MVPs. Mark Dunn introduced me to one of his top VB trainers, Tom Kinzer. Tom did a couple classes for us, and we couldn't be happier. He consistently gets all nines on his evals, perfect for teaching the VBNet Masterclass, which is now the done-training VB.net Masterclass. Thanks, Mark. When looking for a teacher for the ASP.net Masterclass, the obvious choice was Miguel Castro. If you've ever seen him speak at code camps or on .NET Rocks, you know that nobody goes deeper than Miguel into ASP.net. And he also consistently gets perfect scores on his evals. Every other ASP.NET class he teaches is in either VB.NET or C So first he'll do one in VB.NET, and then the next month it'll be in C One very special class we're offering in August is the iDesign WCF Masterclass with Michelle LaRue Bustamante. Michelle and the folks at iDesign are deeply into Windows Communication Foundation, codenamed Indigo. So if you're planning on developing a distributed system at this point, you should be using WCF. Of course, you can check out the course outlines and dates at www.franklins.net. Franklin's Net, training developers to work Smart.
2: Project Automation and Continuous Integration. I remember we were putting this show idea together, Ted. You mentioned that the book itself is participating in project uh, automation.
3: That's right. That's right. Um, this is this book is being written through the Pragmatic Programmer's Press, or the Pragmatic Publisher, or something like that. The, the key word here is pragmatic. This is E-P-P. the publishing company founded by Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt, which, by the way, if you haven't read their book, The Pragmatic Programmer, you're, you're shorting yourself. You know, readers who do not have that book, your homework is to go out, buy that book, um, read it cover to cover, write down all of the 40-some-odd items that they tell you to, you we'll know... F- we'll find a link to it.
1: We'll find a link to it and put it on the show. Yeah.
3: Well, I, you know, I, I can give you the link to the site where you can buy the book and so forth. Okay. The way the... Pragmatic guys are producing their books is, I mean, it, it, it's a testament to the power of this process. What I do is I write the book in an XML format that they call Pragmatic Markup Language, PML. Mm-hmm. It's a variant of DocBook. And they've got a series of specific XML tags that will go literally pick code up from an existing you know, code file on disk. So if I write a you know, .NET sample code snippet, I'll put it in a standard CS file, so I can go ahead and do end-unit tests and so forth against my code. But then in the actual text, I will reference the external file, and you know, there'll be markers inside the code, so that during the process of producing the book, it'll go out, reach into the code file, and insert that snippet, mm. rather than me doing a cut-and-paste manually from work. The process by which this happens, right, this is a set of Ruby scripts, that's basically pulling the book's markup out of a subversion repository and then they actually produce a PDF at the end of one of these build processes and there's a nightly build process. So there you know a couple of people that I've sort of forwarded the the, the book in its you know, draft manuscript form are already looking at PDFs even though I'm nowhere close to what most authors would consider a sort of review ready stage.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Right. Then what makes this even better is at a certain point when the book looks relatively ready, you know, we're getting ready to go through QC and copy editing and so forth, Andy and Dave will let people purchase what they call beta books. In other words, you can get a copy of the PDF, you know, for about half the cost of the book itself. You can download it off their site, and it's the beta of the book, and you can offer feedback and find bugs and so forth. But, you know, it's literally getting the hand getting the book in the hands of people who want it that quickly. Um you know, and it's like 15 bucks to participate in the beta program, right? And when you're cool. done, you actually get a copy of the book as well, if I remember right. So, I,
2: I, mean, just, I just love the idea. It's so continuous integration kind of thing that we're actually yeah, going exactly. to get a chance to see it early and make it better.
3: Yep. And the thing of it is, too, from the time that, you know, I say, okay, the book is done, right, we've, we've stopped development, we've shipped the book, it takes them about... What did Dave tell me? I think it's about three weeks before copies start showing up on the shelf. Contrasted with, for those who haven't written for a publisher before, you know, Addison-Wesley or O'Reilly or so forth, for them that lead time can be on the order of months because they have to do typesetting they have to schedule room at the printers. blah. Yeah. blah, 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 blah. So, it's, you know, this allows the book itself to be much more agile. And then, conceivably, if the book is successful and people, you know, the, the space changes significantly and so forth, we can turn around and make changes to the book. You know, people can who are part of the beta program could conceivably get new updates, and they have started doing this for several of their books. As updates come out, they'll send you an email notification. If you plug in your order number on the website, you can download a fresh copy of the PDF. I mean, just it's cool. really sort of blurring the distinction between you know hardbound book and you know almost a, a blog style where you can continue to update almost a wiki style more. Yeah, uh, we can continue to update as new information comes into play. And then at a certain point, if enough changes is made, yeah, we'll ship it and call it a second edition.
2: And this is the Pragmatic Programmers, right? Pragmaticprogrammer.com? Yeah, yeah, that's them. And yeah, they've got another book just out from one of uh, one of our regulars in DNR TV, Venkat Subramanium, uh, just released a book called Practices of an Agile Developer With, through Pragmatic yep. Programmers. With
1: Andy Hunt. Yep.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Venkat and I speak at um, uh, the Java uh, shows called No Fluff Just Stuff. Yeah, and you know, we, I mean, Venkat's a, a very, very good friend of mine. And you know, if you've not, if you've not figured out how to, you know, in, how to implement agile development, or if you want to try to figure out, you know, you want to get past sort of the extreme, you know, notion of programming and so forth. Venkat and Andy's book is a good way to say this is what an Agile developer does. Yeah. You know, and you use that sort of as a by-example uh, way of, of introducing, you know, more Agile practices into your shop. One of the great, I think, fallacies of Agile development is the idea that you have to flip this switch and suddenly everything has to change. You know, right. everybody has to rearrange the furniture and start pair programming and so forth. That's really not <laughs> the case. Agile is about adapting procedures and process to your shop rather than the other way around. It's yeah. always kind of what the CMM guys, he says, you must do it this way no matter what size shop you are and no matter what kind of software you're building. Yeah. The agile guys say, use what works.
1: Right. You know, uh, it, it's interesting, the, uh, the, the the show with Venkat that I remember fondly that we did on DNR TV at DNR com was about generics. And he talked about generics and he was doing it, he was doing the show from a hotel room at a java conference and it might have been no fluff just stuff
3: i'm pretty sure it was
1: so and and he had java on the brain and it, he gets toward the end and he starts writing java instead of c sharp and you know he's like oh i'm sorry i got you know i'm at a <laughs> java conference <laughs> and so i said well you know what do you think of the uh generic support in java and he goes what generic support yeah you know he's basically yeah. saying it really really sucks
3: we collectively, you know, the speakers on that on that show, you know, we are not we are not real fond of what sun chose to do with respect to generics because what they did is they implemented something called type erasure. So the notion that it's a generic type gets eliminated by the time you get done with the compilation process. And great. That that creates problems because, you know, like if you reflect over it, you don't see the fact that it's in generic. Yeah. To you, it's just
4: a right. uh, standard
3: standard list. Um, yep. Actually, Dave Thomas was, I think, the one who said, "You know, we really shouldn't have called them generics. We should have called them specifics." <laughs> That's what you're doing. If you're creating a specific of something. Um, I love it. Yeah, Dave. Dave is great for those kinds of pithy quotes. He's he's an excellent speaker, and and frankly, I'll say that about all of the guys on the No Fluff Tour. You know, if, if you're a .NET developer and you're sort of asking yourself what's a, you know, good sort of low-cost show to go to, um, believe it or not, the no just of stuff shows, even though they gear specifically towards Java and more recently Ruby, um, there's still a tremendous amount of, of, you know, non-code-related things that you can carry away with you mm-hmm. just in terms of ideas, mentality, um, approach... You know, those non tangibles that you frequently don't get when you go to a tech ed or when yeah. you go to a VS Live or something like that.
1: Hey Ted, what else uh, you have anything else you wanna wanna talk about or or push or or mention or plug before we uh, call it a show?
3: Um well, let's see. I mentioned speaking in tech ed with Kathy Um I mentioned next week I'll be in Montreal at uh Dev Teach with Richard again. Yep, with Richard, which is always a fun show. Give my and condolences
1: to people. I wish I could be there this year. I can't.
3: Ah, uh, well, we'll miss you. We'll uh, we'll we'll drink a lot of beer. That's uh, good. You know, to sort of make up for it. <laughs> Give a dollar um, to the
1: wood dancer at Chez Pierre for me.
3: I I will do that. I will do that. <laughs> uh, I'm sure he will be happy. Oh um, no,
1: you bastard!
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, other than that, you know, I've got a blog, uh um, I do um, consulting, I do mentoring, I do, you know, I... Uh, you do it. I do, yeah, I do I do it all. All right. Um, you know, Richard already mentioned the s b c show, but, and you as well, Carl. Yeah. I'll plug that one again. That's always a fun show. I love, that's a gorgeous facility out there too.
2: I can't wait. Wonderful bunch of people.
3: Yeah. I can't yeah. wait. Half the fun of these conferences are the, are the, the speakers, right? You know, that's where all the cool kids come and hang out. Are these, are
1: these uh, So <laughs> These are friends that you never see anywhere else except at conferences. It's really bizarre. It's true. Yeah. Really bizarre. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, you know, we're all, I mean, just look at this phone call, right? We've got one guy in British Columbia from a dining room table. We've got one guy from New London from wherever.
1: A recording um, booth, actually.
3: Recording booth, okay. And, you know, me, I'm on my, my cellular phone sort of pacing back and forth in my condo in Redmond. So, you know. The only time I'm going to see you, Carl, is at conferences. Right. I have no compelling reason to go out to New London, Connecticut. I don't care how good the food is.
1: Dude, you've been here. You've had the food. You can't say that. I've had
3: the food, and and (laughs) it was good food, but not worth a 4,000-mile trip, dude. That's just not going to happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. I like you, (laughs) bud.
3: I don't see you hopping on a plane to come here to Seattle either, bud.
1: And in all honesty, you had, like, a grinder at a just standard (laughs) shop. You didn't have (laughs) New London food. Signature, signature. All right. well next time anyway alright yeah. guys that's a show thanks uh, thanks, Ted for helping us out and, and uh, sharing your knowledge with us been, been a great show. and uh, you're listening to .NET Rocks and we will catch you next week see ya
0: Net Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com/dotnetrocks. Dot .Net Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maisiolic, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .net Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never sleeps. .dotnet Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back.
4: Time!